really glad that you are here. Uh, this is a topic I'm really glad that I get to give. Um, Peter, Judas, is it me, Lord? They each ask that question. My subtext are practical concern over predestination. That should be a soft way into this topic. Predestination can give people concerns, but I can see that even generally stayed around just to hear me talk about predestination. Okay, so where I'm going to start is, you know, Job. Job is a guy who is having intense suffering. His uh, children have died and in-laws and grandchildren. All, the, uh, all his material wealth, gone. All his uh, land and property, which was essential um, at that time, gone. And he is now covered in sores. And so, and his reputation is gone. So he's lost everything. Well, his three friends, his three comforters, remain silent for seven days. And then they open their mouths. We know that if you're familiar with the story, that is not the wisest thing to do when someone's deeply suffering. You just need to keep your mouth shut. But Bildad just can't handle it. And he has to say something. And these are his words from Job 25. Dominion and fear are with God. He makes peace in his, his, in his highest heaven. Is there a number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not arise? How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright, and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man, who is a maggot, the son of man, who is a worm? Now, these are words, a theological lesson to someone suffering. <clears throat> uh, this is a cold comfort. It's a cold comfort. But often we hear these kind of words when tragedy strikes us. There was a woman who came to Labrie, I mean, came to a conference where I was speaking, and her son had died by suicide. And she went to her pastor and the elders at her church, and they said it was the will of God that that occur. And she wanted to know what I had to say. Um, Julie and I um, were unable to have a child for many years, and there was a woman who we had little to no relationship to and wanted to spend a send a special message and say, it's the will of God that you have no children. Um, it's interesting that people will want to stuff so much into the will of God. God's ordaining work is decrees. Um, and so this will of God is a way of saying God is majestic. So toughen up, buddy. Um, however, I call this a theological fatalism. Um, it's, it's trying to state something about how majestic God is, but it's actually foreign to the text. It's foreign to the Bible itself. In fact, I would call it ungodly. Uh, it was famously known as worm theology. You heard Bildad say, man is but a worm. 
Well, what I believe this is, it's really trying to elevate God's status, his sovereign power over all things. And this is important by diminishing human dignity and by diminishing human agency. So how do you lift God up? By pushing down humanity. Now, I used to pity people who used to wring their hands over their salvation. Did I lose it this week? Because I did party this weekend. Do I need to receive another altar call? Am I really saved? Um, And so they would work really hard. Have I done enough for God to continue to love me? Will he love me again? And I just used to pity those fools. I was like, God has it in his grasp. He's in control. Um, And so it's not something you can earn. It's not something that you can lose. You know, God's salvation is certain. They would say, well, how do you know that you're saved then? Well, that is the problem. (laughs) It becomes, you're not wringing your hands over losing your salvation. You're wringing your hands over if you ever had it. Will you ever have it? Are you the one that will persevere? Are you truly the one chosen? Or is God using you as a spectacle or an object lesson in his will? Um, If God has chosen people before the creation of the world, as Paul puts it in Ephesians, then did God choose me before I was born? Uh, The successor to Calvin, this is often called Calvinism. And uh, I want to make a defense of that. I'm a Calvinist, but this is not Calvinism in its proper sense. Calvin himself would never have gone this far. In fact, he said it would be such a horrible decree. Logically, it seems that God must have power over all salvation. Um, Because predestination, in essence, is uh, God predetermining the the effects of salvation before the creation of the world through Jesus Christ. Now, how you work out those details is the question. But the six, and so Calvin said, you know, this is what it seems logically, but we should not press too far into it. We should not kind of go where angels fear to tread. Well, his successor did not follow his advice. And so Theodore Beza Uh, said, no, if God is sovereign, then he had to have chosen those who'd gone to heaven before. And in fact, if he had chosen those who went to heaven, he had to have chosen those who went to hell. In fact, in order to maintain his status as sovereign power, he had to create people in order to damn them. That's Beza. And that's called supralapsarianism. If you want a special word, if you forget it, that's wonderful. Um, hope you never have to hear it. Um, some people call it uh, double predestination, but people like fancy theologians who come up with these ideas like fancier words. Does double refer to like some people going to hell? And some a double predestination. Some are predestined to heaven. Some are predestined to hell. And so predestination is not just about the effects of salvation before the creation of the world through Jesus Christ, but it is God's choosing that those go to heaven and choosing those go to hell. 
you, you, not you, not you. So single predestination is only people chosen for heaven. Single predestination would be just those who are chosen to go to heaven. But people would say, well, if you have a single predestination, logically it follows that those who are not chosen go to hell. So, uh, and, and and there can be a positive spin and saying, well, God doesn't have to save anyone. His glory does not demand it, doesn't need it. He is, he is just to condemn all, but if he saves but one, then he is just or merciful. He's not just just, but also merciful. Um, and so single predestination would say all those whom he has saved is a great mercy, but that he didn't choose others is not unjust. Um, <clears throat> so it's really a trying to get behind God's eyes and God's mind to understand why he does what God does and what God has revealed. <clears throat> and so um, Calvin said that this doctrine is a logical doctrine, uh, but we can't press it too far. Uh, I like what Rookmacher says is this is not a logical doctrine, is an experiential doctrine. Um, which I'll explain in a minute. <clears throat> so the doctrine of predestination is something that most people would like to avoid altogether. Uh, let's not talk about it. It's the skeletons in the closet. God has skeletons in the closet. Let's not talk about it and let's just accept his love, Why not? Uh, his salvation. Um, who could know anyway? And then other traditions, the tradition I grew up in, I'll go into a lot more later, is that it overemphasized God's sovereign power of salvation and love talking about predestination first and last. It filled all our conversations. Because if you weren't chosen, why even have the discussions? And so we often talk about predestination a lot, especially when you're in high school and university and you're really wanting to hammer it home. Um, <clears throat> but Ruckbacher says, okay, it's not a logical doctrine, but an experiential one, the way, the way that is presented biblically. The Bible always speaks about predestination as something positive as an encouragement to Christians. And it's used toward Christians who have fears, who have doubts, who are overwhelmed, who are scared, who are suffering. And it says, no, God has you. God has you. There's no fear. God will not lose you. God is not going to be dethroned. And so when it talks about predestination in the Bible, it's always in reference to this about his sovereign power over the nations and over individuals. And it's to be an encouragement that no one can de derail what God wants to do in you and in his people. Um, and Rookmacher specifically says that it's an experiential one because when someone experiences salvation, they don't think, wow, I'm glad I figured that out. They think, who? Me? You forgive even a sinner like me? It's one of gratitude, of one of thanksgiving. It's not as if someone thinks, I figured God out and I made the right choice. And so the doctrine of predestination is an experiential one. 
So why Calvin says, you know, you preach the word to 10 people, five believe and five don't. Why? They all have reason. They all have the ability to see why do some believe and some don't. And, and the five who believe say, thank you, God. And the others are like, eh, I just don't see it. So how do we explain that? How are you to explain that experience, that consistent experience? Um, and so it's this doctrine of predestination, but not as a logical one, but as an experiential one. So because of that, I want to take a theological journey. So this is my outline for you. For those who like roadmaps, um, first, I'm going to give you a theological journey. It's my theological journey. Since we're talking about the doctrine of predestination as an experiential one, I'm going to veer from my usual format of giving you basically a history or systematic approach. I'm going to give you a personal theological journey, my theological journey, in how I received an understanding of these things and how they how I misread the Bible and how it spiritually deformed me and my way out of it. Uh, not by my good sense, you will see. Then I will turn to look at the figures of Peter and Judas, who really stand, they, they play a role in my personal story, but you hold this idea of, um, of Judas, this person, a son of perdition, prophesied that he would betray Jesus. Um, and Peter, also a person who betrays Jesus or denies him and yet restored, but, P but Judas is not. So is Judas chosen and Peter is not? And that's something we see being played out in front of us in the story. How are we to think of that? Um, that even Judas and Peter ask, is it me, Lord? Jesus says, the son of man will be betrayed by one of you. And they look at one another, is it me? This is in Matthew 16 or Matthew 13, one of those. And is it me, Lord? Is it me, Lord? And it says, whoever dips their hand in this uh, together will be my betrayer. And Judas and him dipped together at the same time. I don't know. I would be totally avoiding Jesus' hands going into it. But Judas, his hand goes in it and he goes, is it I, teacher? Is it me, rabbi? And Jesus says, you have said it so. And then Judas leaves. Uh, so it's this very discomforting story of Judas and how he functions within this predestination and Peter as well. And I, and I believe that Judas and Peter are object lessons for us that we will get to after I get through my theological journey. And then I will turn to lessons or what I call a retooled theological framework, my retooled theological framework, which should work for you. <laughs> um, Okay, let's start with the theological journey. Um, you'll see for those familiar, this will be loosely tied to something called TULIP, an acronym, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of saints, yay Calvinism. Uh, this is TULIP if you're familiar with it. Um, this will be loosely, and I'm not gonna explain TULIP, okay? But if you're familiar with it, it will be loosely tied to it. Um, but not quite. But where I want to begin is God's absolute power. This is essential. God's glory. God's glory is numero uno. Um, but what does it mean for God to be glorious or God's glory? Well, 
my understanding, and often this theological fatalism, is that God's power is absolute. His power is absolute. Um, and so in the late medieval church period, they called this ex lex. Um, lex means law, ex means out, um, um, out of or not according to. Uh, so not by law, that God is not constrained by law. That God's sovereign power, he's the one that created the laws. So how is he constrained by them? He created from nothing. And so he created natural law. So he could have made us um, breathe water and exhale flowers. He could have had us rolling around on our heads. Uh, G.K. Chesterton would often talk about this dynamic power of God's creative agency by um, talking about that's the truth of fairy tales, that children see, um, if you taste the wrong vegetable or the wrong fruit, you might turn into a frog. So reality is very, you don't know what's happening. And children have this openness to creation, that there's not an inevitability to science. There's not a uniformity, um, uniformity to all natural laws, that they are creative acts of God that could have easily been otherwise. Jesus shows power over these natural laws. But that wasn't the primary concern. That's true that God could create any kind of world, they say. But, um, and I would say, yes, I agree with that. Oh, by the way, I'm not going to untangle all of this for you while I'm talking. I'm just going to talk about how I was thinking and how I was formed and how people with a theological fatalistic view, which you may have, um, how it's understood. But ex-lex means something more. It means that God has power over moral law as well. Morals could have been something very different. He could have made a world, they said, where rape was good, a moral good. Um, or you could think monogamy and friendship are evil. God could make a world where those laws exist. They aren't our world, but God could make a world such as that they say. And so God's power is so absolute that whatever he wills is good. It's not that he's subject to some other laws. Otherwise, he wouldn't be God. The nth degree of all things um, is the idea, the philosophical concept. Um, and so God's power is not constrained in any way. Closely related to this is human insignificance. This was the second theological principle working in my mind. Uh, so once I was at a church camp, this guy, this youth pastor was walking and he was carrying a bucket of water. I don't remember why, but all of the kids from their cabin were walking along behind him and some water sloshed out. And he thought, oh, this is a perfect time for a teaching lesson. Um, and he says, you know, the Bible says that that drop of water that just kind of sloshed out is like human existence. All the nations are like a drop from the bucket and that it would not, it would not hinder God being God at all if it just sloshed and disappeared. And I thought, that's heavy. You know, I was probably 11 <laughs> or 12 <laughs> thinking, wow, God is so big and humans are so insignificant. Uh, and he really got it from this passage. The passage is from Isaiah uh, 40. So just 
listen here, who has scooped up the ocean in his two hands or measured the sky between his thumb and little finger? Who has put all the earth's dirt in one of his baskets, weighed each mountain and hill? Who could ever have told God what to do or taught him his business? What expert would he have gone to for advice? What school would he attend to learn justice? What God do you suppose might have taught him what he knows, showed him how things work? Why? The nations are but a drop in a bucket, a, smear, a mere smudge on a window. Watch him sweep up the islands like so much dust off the floor. You can see this is quite close to Bildad's words of comfort. <laughs> what is Isaiah saying? How are we to deal with this? In fact, it comes very close to thinking as Carl Sagan did. <laughs> which I've mentioned before here, is that Carl Sagan, a famous atheist and scientist, uh, asked NASA to turn Voyager, Voyager was going out into deep space to find the, the, how immense space was and if we could find the limits of space. And, and he asked NASA to turn Voyager around to take a picture of planet Earth. Well, this is that picture, millions away in that pale blue dot is planet earth. Carl Sagan was like, don't you see how insignificant we are, how small we are in the immensity of space? And that's just our galaxy. Makes me also think of Alan de Batona, a pop philosopher and also an atheist who wrote a book called Religion for Atheists. And he was discussing Job and trying to use religious ideas to help us spiritually and psychologically. Uh, and he said that Job learned that his problems should be set in context of the immensity of space. And that space was, quoting him, majestically unaware of everything we are and consolingly unaffected by all that tears us apart. Majestically unaware consolingly unaffected. <clears throat> so it's this idea that our problems may seem big until we realize how small we are, how insignificant we are. Don't you know we're but a worm, a maggot? Now, what I didn't know is that passage in Isaiah um, is referencing God's encouragement to little Israel, who's being overwhelmed by the raging nations that will wage war against Israel, Israel in exile. And God is saying through the prophet Isaiah, don't you know that they are but a drop in the bucket? They don't overwhelm my power. They can't overwhelm my love for you. And in fact, what just preceded the verse that I just read talked about making a way in the wilderness for the coming Messiah, for God's Savior to come, Jesus. And so Isaiah is referencing comfort to Israel, not despair like Carl Sagan or Alan de Vuitton or Bildad or our theological fatalistic friends, myself included. And this is what I used to love making <laughs> hay of. I love talking about how insignificant I was. It made me feel powerful. <clears throat> Closely related to human insignificance is human depravity, what is called total depravity. Not only was God awesome in his power, 
not only were humans insignificant in the whole scheme of time and space, but these humans were totally depraved. Um, total depravity, as I understood it at the time, is where Luther calls the bondage of the will. We try to change, we try to change, but we just can't. And we are dead at the bottom of the ocean. Paul writes, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Paul doubles down in Ephesians saying, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So I was often taught, you're dead at the ocean. Well, how can you do anything living? What power do you have? You're but dead material. It makes it, only God has to raise you up. And to do anything in you, it has to be God's power. And so I understood this to mean that any free act that I did on my own power would be evil, wicked. Any power that I did that was good was directly from God. It was God's direct action in me. As it's, and, um, and in fact, I thought any attempt at me trying to be righteous in my own power would be self-righteousness. Isaiah 64, verse 6, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garment. All our righteous acts are but dirty rags to God. Isaiah, what are you saying? <laughs> but I took that to mean as no matter how hard I tried, and especially if I tried to be righteous, I was being wicked. <clears throat> and so I was, uh, I remember going home. This was a great object lesson for me. I went home and my dad offered me a glass of wine as he always did. And I said, no, not tonight. And I was, I had just come from seminary. This is years later. And he said, why don't you want a glass of wine? Who would ever reject a glass of wine? And I said, well, I'm fasting. I'm fasting from alcohol for a year. And he just shook his head and said, what kind of seminary do you go to? Are you trying to build upon another foundation than what Jesus has done? Are you just trying to be self-righteous? Um, and so I learned as a young kid, any attempt to be righteous was wicked. So just be, um, <clears throat> attached to this, not only God's awesome power is absolute, that humans are insignificant and depraved. So how are we ever going to experience salvation? Well, it's God's unconditional election. It's his free choice because there's nothing that would cause God to choose you, except by his mercy. Paul says it very clearly. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God had to have chosen his elect before the creation of the world because they would be dead and he would raise them to life by his good purpose and his good mercy. Luckily for me, I was saved. <laughs> I was like, I'm in. I'm not sure about those people, but I know I'm in, I think. 
Well, there's an assurance there because I knew if I was saved, once saved, always saved. Now, you're not going to find this phrase in the Bible. I don't know if you know that. You're not going to find this phrase in the Bible, but it's not something too far from the pale. Um, it's a reference to when Jesus assures his disciples that all those who come to me by the Father's will, I will not cast out. I will not lose them. Paul says in his letter, and that's in John 6 and John 10, to save time, I will not read them out. Paul says something very similarly, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So these are very similar sentiments to once saved, always saved. If God chose you from death, why would he let you go back to death? If he would raise you from the dead, why would he let you go? Because it was him who needed to save you. It's him who's doing the work. He's the one that promises going to complete it. So why would he renege on his own will to raise you from the dead? So there's the confidence that if I am saved, I will be saved. I am is as good as already being saved in completion, already glorified. So this led me to the question, as a, now in my college years, how am I to respond? Well, okay, I'm insignificant. I don't have any good in me. If there's any good, God causes it. God raised me from the dead. He's going to complete me. If I try to be righteous, I'm going to be wicked. You can see my little college brain working this out with all its vigor. Well, am I really saved? Okay, I need to figure this out. Do I believe that God exists? Yes. Do I believe the Bible is true? Yes. Do I believe that Jesus existed and can save me from my sins? Yes. Do I trust in him as my personal savior? Yes. Whew, pass. I'm saved. I can't lose it. But what am I going to do now? <laughs> if I can't be righteous in my own effort. The light clicked on. I can do whatever I want. All God to the glory. I'm free. I'm totally free. And so I started drinking hard. I started partying hard, smoking lots of pot, doing different kinds of drugs. Um, uh, I was a bouncer before, uh, before this, but it worked coincided lovely with all that I wanted to do. And I just lived my life to the full tilt. I had beautiful friends. I had a wonderful job. Everyone liked ideas and surrealist film, film and philosophy. And I was just loving life. Um, <clears throat> well, this is called antinomianism. That's a big word, antinomianism. It's a fancy theological word to justify lawlessness. Antinomianism means lawlessness. Anti-law, anti-nomos. It's just a doctrine of lawlessness. And it's exactly how I just explained it. Um, so it sounds very official. It's also very unbiblical. <clears throat> but this is where I was until I hit a theological crisis. One night over a fine single malt and a couple hits off the bong, I was ready to turn to my Bible and journal my devotional time. I always had it in the morning, one in the morning. 
Um, <laughs> this is how I was. Um, and I was very consistent biblically until I read Second Peter. And this is what it reads. And it's talking about these people who are carousing in the daylight, they're drunk, and their lives are going down the drain. And then Peter has to say this to them. These people are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. <coughs> they promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. That hit me like a ton of bricks. It was a knife to the heart. But you can't lose your salvation. What is Peter talking about? How can they know our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, be free from the entanglements of the world, but return to it? And then it's worse for them than at the beginning. How can you know the way of righteousness and then turn your backs on what is the sacred command? I couldn't <laughs> believe what I was reading because it nailed me to the wall. It's exactly who I was. At the same time that I read this, I had a friend, a close friend that I hung out with regularly, and he died of a drug overdose. And he, yeah, he died. Um, grew up in the same tradition I grew up in. Um, uh, I remember reading this passage and another passage, and I called my youth, I called a youth pastor that I was a buddy with, we drank and smoked pot with, and uh, <laughs> from my tradition, and I said, I'm really worried. And he's like, oh, your confidence is shaky, but just trust that you can't add anything to what Christ has already done. So I'm like, okay, okay. And then my friend died. Well, a couple of weeks later, I was um, smoking a joint with this uh, very attractive Jewish man, and he wanted to know what I believed. How could I be doing this? How could I be drinking and smoking and still talking about God? And he was curious about what I believed. And we talked and he was very interested. And he goes, I would like to talk more about this. I was excited. Um, the next day he went to a lake with a couple of people and he got shot by a, a post office worker and killed. This all happened within about a month's time. <clears throat> I was shaken. I didn't know what to do. Um, <clears throat> and so I heard that there was, I was a little bit too embarrassed to go to church because of how I felt about myself, but also because I didn't want my friends to know. And I thought, you know what? I heard that there's a men's Bible study at the Holiday Inn at 6.30 in the morning. None of my friends are awake at 6.30. They're just going to bed. And these men don't know me. And so I'm just going to walk in and 
ask my questions at the men's prayer breakfast at the Holiday Inn at 6.30 in the morning. So I stayed up. It was five o'clock in the morning. And I thought, hey, might as well stay up until 6.30. So in my corduroys and my flat thrift store flannels, my, my shoes in Oxford, Mississippi, and long hair, I went into the Holiday Inn and, uh, and I saw a whole group of portly men with their blazers on smelling of cologne and coffee. And I thought, okay, <laughs> but there was a pastor there and I trusted him. I knew him. I knew his daughter, his daughter and I were good friends. And as soon as I walked in, I didn't smell of patchouli, but I could have, <laughs> but as soon as I walked in, the pastor said, Hey, you know, before we begin, I'm just curious to ask you all a question. Do you think that Judas could be forgiven? And I was just like, oh. that's the question I was wondering. And it was so wise of him. One, because it showed me the hearts of these men really quickly. Some said, he's going to burn the deepest burn. Others were like, I sure hope so. And I was like, I trust him, not him, trust him, <laughs> not him. And, um, <clears throat> but instead of slamming the door, I didn't feel like it was a judgment. It opened the door. Is it possible? Is it possible for me who put a whole bunch of shame around the town about Jesus and my hypocrisy? <clears throat> and so that was the question that hung over me. So before I finish the story, I'm going to turn to Peter and Judas. Okay. And then I'm going to tell the rest of the story. Understanding Judas and Peter. Are we doing good? Um, let me read Matthew 16. I don't have it printed, but it's in my notes that I was supposed to do this. Hmm. I can't find it. So I'll just skip, skip quote, um, not quoting it, but, uh, but the passage I'm trying to refer to is where, uh, Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And they say, is it me? Is it me? Um, but Jesus talks about there will be one who will betray him. You see Judas right there, painted by Rubens. He's staring at me, he's creepy, creepy eyes. Um, he's something up, up to something. But we focus so much on Judas that we forget that Peter is always set side by side with Judas. Whenever you hear about Judas trying um, asking, is it me? You also hear Peter, is it me? When you see Judas have betrayal, you also see Peter's denial. They, they go side by side throughout the New Testament that you're supposed to see them in juxtaposition, not just chronologically, but um, uh, figuratively, symbolically. And so I want to look at their similarities, what makes them different. The prophetic word, particularly about Judas, how we deal with that, and then Peter's encouragement. And then I'll turn to the rest of the story. So similarities. It's amazing how similar Judas and Peter are. They're both chosen by Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, I chose the 11 and one of you is the devil. He says, I chose the 12. And yet one of you is the devil. One of you will betray me. It's curious. Jesus chose him. And yet he knew he would betray him. 
Peter was also chosen. They both witnessed Jesus's teaching and power. So they walked with him for the three years. They both heard predictions of Jesus's death and resurrection uh, about a donkey being in town. They saw, he saw the power of Jesus. They both misunderstood who Jesus was. Um, they, Jesus, Jesus is pretty confusing in what he was doing. Uh, both rejected Jesus at a crucial moment. When Jesus was going to be before the Sanhedrin. Both were foretold that of their betrayal. So Judas was said, you are, you are the one who's going to betray me. Peter, you are the one that's going to deny me. So Jesus tells him before it even happens that this is what's going to happen. Both succumb to the temptation of Satan. Satan enters into Judas. But do you remember when it, uh, um, Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Both were given opportunities for mercy. Jesus says to Judas, friend, are you going to betray the son of man with a kiss? Continually calling them when they sat together, Judas sat in a privileged position um, and he sat to Jesus' right hand. So this picture has him across, but actually he would have been at the right hand of Jesus, a privileged position. And uh, Peter was constantly called into his private affairs. And then also you see that both are grieved by what they've done toward Jesus. They're grieved by their rejection. Judas runs and throws the money. And Peter weeps in the darkness. So they're quite similar figures. But they have differences. They have different ends and different motivations. Judas has worldly grief. That's different than godly grief. Worldly grief, it ends in despair. There is no hope. There is no chance. There's no second chances. And so Judas goes and he, he runs to uh, the priests and he throws his money at them and says, I have sinned. I have betrayed innocent blood. So Judas is self-aware. He's not just clouded in the mind. He knows what he's done. He's trying to give the money back. He's trying to find absolution. And what do the priests say? What does that have to do with us? Of course, they're the ones that colluded with him. They don't want to touch the money. Um, as I said the other day, it's like, it's like paying somebody to murder and then saying, I'm, I'm innocent. Uh, and so Judas, without hope, with despair, not knowing that he could even turn back, he runs and he dies by suicide, by hanging himself. That's a disastrous and sad story. Peter does not respond. In, um, and so, uh, sorry, let me back up. John Stott from the cross of Christ, I believe this is where it's from. He says this because you have this idea of this prophetic word against Judas, that Judas was, was predicted to betray. And it was told that he would betray and that he would be the cause of, this, of Jesus going to the cross. 
And John Stott says, Judas must be held responsible for what he did, having no doubt plotted it for some time previously. Yes, he kept taking money and he betrayed Jesus before he said he would betray him. The fact that his betrayal was foretold in the scriptures does not mean that he was not a free agent. Any more than the Old Testament predictions of the death of Jesus mean that he did not die voluntarily. So there's this mystery of God's will, his foreknowledge, um, his ordinances, and yet human agency and responsibility. Then with Judas, I mean, sorry, with Peter, you have different response. He doesn't have worldly grief. He has godly grief. Godly grief, Paul talks about, is godly grief is that one that leads to repentance. But Peter doesn't know how to repent. Um, he's just broken. But what he does is he returns to Christian community, Christian fellowship, the fellowship of the other disciples. Can you imagine how ashamed he felt? But he went back and he joined them in spite of it. He would share their griefs as well and their lost hopes. But then when he heard that Jesus rose again from the dead, he was ran to the tomb and he pushed John to the side and said, let me in first. So he's anxious to get back to Jesus, even though he had denied him, even though it still was not safe to do so. And one of my favorite uh, scenes is when he's in the boat and they said, oh, John says that's Jesus is on the shore. And Peter doesn't wait to row. He jumps out and swims. He's so amped up that when the boat comes in, he pulls all the fish in and like runs up to Jesus. And Jesus gives him some admonishment. Do you love me? You know, I love you. Then feed my sheep. Do you love me? You know, I love you. Then feed my sheep. But do you really love me? That hurts. Of course, I love you. Then feed my sheep. And I bet you he understood what Jesus said earlier to him and said, listen, Satan wants to sift you like chaff. But I have I'm praying for you. And when you return. Go and encourage your brothers and sisters. So there was this. Prophecy that Peter, I'm praying for you, I know you're going to return. And when you do so, use that. Use that, that denial that you had, that rejection of me to encourage those who might fear and do the same. And so that's exactly what Peter does in his letters. In 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 10 through 11, Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there, they, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They'll be provided for, but make sure you stick to Jesus. He's called you. Keep hugging him. Keep holding on to him. Keep returning to him. He says in his first letter in chapter five, be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, 
the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So this encouragement, stand fast, but if you fall prey to the devil, return. Christ is faithful. The God of all grace will strengthen you and confirm you back. Because Peter experienced that himself. So the rest of the story, (laughs) there's young Clark in the middle with my flannel and long hair. I'm at Swiss Labrie there. Um, 1999. I spent Y2K at Swiss Labrie. They didn't know that, but I do. Um, So let me tell you the rest of the story. So I had just had this experience, if you remember, of hearing the question, is there a possibility for Judas? Is there some possibility for a betrayer, for a blasphemer like myself? And so I cried out to God. I said a very honest prayer, God, I've messed up and I really love my life. And I like everything about my life. I like my friends. I like the credit cards my parents pay for. I like (laughs) everything about my life. And I'm going to die if I stay. This is the road to death. I need you to take me out. But I don't know how you can do it. I don't know how to do it. I can't do it. The next morning, I went to work. And someone was reading about Labrie. I was like, that's where I'm going. (laughs) And so I called my dad after six and a half years of university and say, dad, mm-hmm. I'm going to go to this place called Labrie. Isn't that awesome? Um, can you pay for it? <laughs> you already knew about it, right? I knew about it in shadowy form, but this was the time that I was like, okay, this is the place I need to go to. Um, and I expected bread, water, very like kind of severe monasticism. And that's what I was ready for, to flog myself. I was ready to flog myself. And, um, and my dad said, no, I've just paid for six and a half years. You need to grow up and be a man, which was true. (laughs) Um, but I wasn't ready yet. (laughs) And, uh, and, uh, but I felt really devastated when he told me no, because I was like, once my dad says, no, it's no. Well, for some reason I happened to be up in Memphis where my family lived and my dad saw me, he's like, so uh, this Labrie place, what is it? I'm like, I'm not really sure. <laughs> it's a Christian place where you can go ask questions. And, uh, and he says, so when do you want to go? And I was trying to be calm. I'm like, uh, as soon as possible or whatever, you know. Uh, and I just wanted to say now. And so my dad said, okay, all I want you to do is three things for me. I'm going, uh, I want you to find out how much it costs. I want you to quit your job and I want to sub and get you to sublet your apartment. This was August. And I was like, great. Okay. No problem. So I go back and I party with my friends. I'm out of here. And the next morning I wake up and I quit my job. My boss like, how, when I said three weeks. And he's like, okay. And, um, I didn't do anything else. I called the and said, can I come? But that was it. I didn't find out how much it cost. I quit my job. And day after day passed. 
It was now late September, September 22nd. And no one in Oxford, Mississippi is looking for an apartment September 22nd. I'll tell you that because all the apart places are gone. And if anything, they're looking maybe for October 1st, but people aren't looking because they already have a place. It's a college town. And so I was in despair and I thought, God opened the door for me and I let it shut. God is letting me have just desserts. The doors closed. I couldn't even get myself to go to Labrie where God was offering me mercy. And this guy walked up to me. He passed a couple. I worked at a bookstore. He walked. I worked at Square Books. I, he went past a couple of clerks and came up to me and said, I'm in a real fix and I don't know what to do. I was like, what is it? He said, my girlfriend just kicked me out and I have to find a place to rent. Do you know any place? I said, I do. And so come to my place. So he came over to my place. We hung out and he said, when can I have it? I was like, this weekend. He's like, great. So we were both happy and I was on my way to Labrie and I had songs in my, in my throat and a light step. And I was rejoicing that God was merciful to me. Um, was it my choice? God's ordinate, you know, God's provisions. I still don't know, but I know it was a mystery now of me pursuing God and God having already provided for me. So this is how I retooled my theological framework. And this is where I'm going to end it's the last slide. So first, how we really need to tool it is that God's power is not absolute. That might surprise you. God's power is not absolute. One thing he can't do is not be God. He can't choose to be not God. It's impossible. But what also is that God is constrained to his own moral character. That whenever God does something, he refers to his own moral character. And if you want to remove God philosophically from his moral character to say that he can be whatever morals he wants, that it's just what he presents, then you make God arbitrary. And it's very difficult to know how um, to trust him, to trust his leading, to trust his word. He's not Allah. He's not arbitrary. What he says is true and trustworthy. And so God's power, God is not ex lex. And a lot of people saw the problem with this view, but that God is constrained to his moral character. And that is beautiful. Especially as we come to know what that moral character is. The second retooling is that there's beauty to human dignity. You know, I said that in the first one is that you emphasize God's grandeur by diminishing human dignity and diminishing human agency. But actually, uh, the Bible emphasizes human dignity, which emphasizes God's grandeur. In Isaiah 40, where it says not a drop in the bucket, no nations are but a drop in the bucket. It's not about his awesomeness to ignore us or to state our insignificance, but to show how much he cares. 
uh, you know, I talked about the pale blue dot. And we think how insignificant. But the biblical, the biblical person says, wow, what is the son of man that you're mindful of him? Wow, you care about us and we're so tiny. You pour your love over us. You're in your, in your immensity over us. And so it doesn't matter how small and how much science explains. Uh, it can never make us so insignificant that God's glory does not lavish his love over us. Uh, Jesus said in Luke 12 that God knows even the hair on your head. Aren't you much more valuable than the sparrows? So there's beauty of human dignity. The third retooling is the beauty of human agency. You remember I talked about, well, what do I do? Uh, when you're in a theological fatalism, it becomes all smoke and mirrors. You're not sure if you're real and why do you do what you do? Is God controlling me and why? And it makes cal um, bad Calvinists or hyper-Calvinists very dour people. It's not the good kind of Calvinism. But God's glory is emphasized not only by human dignity, but it's emphasized by human agency. You know, Paul says, Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. That means whatever we do in our agency is the way to glorify him. Not to diminish agency, but to emphasize it. And that's why Christ came. For freedom, Christ has set us free. That glorifies him. Creation groans for the liberation of the, um, the children of God. It's when we are liberated that God's glory, that creation comes to this fulfillment to glorify God. So as we emphasize human dignity and emphasize human agency, according to God's purposes, it glorifies him all the more. The fourth retooling is the importance of righteous living. Now, righteousness, I think, is a great way of learning it, is right orderedness. Holiness is right order between you and God. Righteousness is right order in the vertical plane. Okay. And so it means that you know where to place things. And so righteous living means that you know where to go and how to be in those areas. It's like trying to live free in a dirty room with the lights out. But when you turn the lights on, you set it in place, you are more free. And this is what the freedom God has given us to do is to order our lives rightly, to live righteously in relationship to others and to him. That's why um, when Paul talks about God, you know, predestining us before the creation of the world so that um, we might be able to do the good works that he's prepared for us in advance to do. He's already prepared us for this good work and he's equipping us for it. So righteous living is a part and parcel of his glorious work and salvation in us. And then fifthly and lastly, God's encouragement um, or God's encouraging word of assurance. Now, this is where I want to end because predestination, as I said at the beginning, is a doctrine that's supposed to encourage us, to assure us, to help us not to be fearful or afraid, which is often the opposite of what people think when they think predestination. But predestination is supposed to encourage us that God will not let us go, 
Jesus says, those who, the sheep that are, that know my voice and come to my voice, I will not let them be lost. And he's talking about sheep because they're wayward and there's wolves around. But Jesus says, no, I will protect them. I'm a good shepherd. And so he's talking that predestination is that what I'm, want, what I'm doing in you and what you've come for, I'm going to complete in you. So keep holding me. Keep holding. Keep following. I'm, I'm leading you through the brambles. I'm leading you back. I'm leading you to myself. And then Romans 8. Um, oh, I put Acts in there because Acts is a whole predestination comes up in Acts a lot. And it's like those who are appointed to be saved. Uh, it's, it's really this notion that they're constantly suffering. They're being pressed down. They're going to prison. All the while, all the time that they're being pressed down, put in prison and suffering, the word grows. And so it's a constant theme throughout Acts that they're suffering, 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 suffering. But there's a, that there's a, a trajectory going up that that God's word is extending further and further to the furthest ends of the world. And it's through that suffering and through that being pressed down that the word is being believed. And so this predestinating word, this encouragement is that no matter what happens to you, the church will grow. My people, there are more people than you know about. So Elijah in his time of discomfort and disbelief and despair, God says, there's a lot more people that you have no idea about. I know them. You don't know them. So it's a sense that God knows his people. And he is assuring you that he has it in control and that his word will not come back barren. And then lastly, I wanted to read Rome, uh, Paul because he gets. Um, uh, let's see. So can you. OK, there you go. OK, so Paul, I'm going to read this extended and then uh, pretty much end and we'll open to discussion. Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is then to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Okay, so he's talking about God has put his plan of salvation in effect through Christ Jesus. And if Jesus is your Lord, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's the assurance of predestination. Okay, so... We can open up to discussion. Um, you all have been marvelous um, in listening. Brett. Just to uh, back up, what, what magnificent talk. Mm -hmm. Just to, thanks for sharing as well. It's, you know, exposing your inner self yet again. Mm -hmm. We appreciate it. Um, I was really struck by a guy called Clinton Arnold, mm 
who was commenting on Ephesians 1, where it says God has predestined mm. you. And he points out that the entire first or second chapter, you have to read Acts 17. And, and the context was the occult. And even the Christians, mm. they burnt like it cost half a million dollars worth of books mm. of right. magic. Right. And apparently, and, and I've seen it on the statues, that Diana of greatest Artemis of the Ephesians, she wears the signs of the Zodiac around her neck. Mm. In other words, she is in charge of fate. Mm. And the whole thing about Ephesians 1 is, no, she's not in charge. God is in charge. Mm. Oh, awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, okay, so is it predestination or free will or both? I'm guessing the answer is yes. <laughs> Yes, it's, it's uh, you know, I wouldn't say predestination or free will. It's God's sovereignty or human responsibility, and it's both. Uh, Francis Schaeffer says that it has to be 100% God's sovereignty. Any less than 100% of God's sovereignty, he is no longer God. But it's also 100% human responsibility. You cannot collapse the two. You have to hold both. So those who are constantly wringing their hands, wondering if they've done enough in the moralistic or legalistic traditions or the tendency toward that, they wonder if they've done enough. It, it, it minimizes God's sovereignty and overemphasizes human responsibility um, and uh, overemphasizes human ability because there is such thing as the bondage of the will. I do believe that, that I don't do what I want to do. And I do the things I, uh, I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do what I want to do. But if you go on the other side and emphasize only God's sovereignty and not free will, then you end up denying human dignity and human agency. Mm -hmm. The Bible, in its revelation, declares both. It holds the paradox of both, and we just have to deal with that. Um, it's uh, Han Ruckmacher said it's like the Trinity. Or like the nature of Christ being both 100% God and 100% man, is that you can't get behind the doctrine. It's something that's just received, and as it's received, makes sense of our experience and of the Bible. So uh, the paradox that God is 100% sovereign and that we're 100% responsible for our own actions, both are true. Uh, and we just have to receive both. Yeah, you're welcome. Zach, did you have something you want to say? Yeah, is it okay to speak it? Uh, yes. Um, just one second. Melanie, thank you. Clark has really great pair of talks from about 10 years ago, Are We Really Free?, which really digs into free will issue. Thank you, Melanie. Hey, Zach, my man. Howdy. Howdy. Uh, I was uh, building off of these questions, uh, the last question. Um, great talk. Appreciate it, by the way. Uh, yeah, I guess I'm wondering, I've been toying with this question uh, this summer a bit. Do you think that, you know, the Christian in good faith should, you know, should lead a conversation with other believers saying, I'm a Calvinist and that's what, I don't know, five points and that's my, that's what I think about your free will. There's none. Or I'm an Armenian and it's free will and bully on your God's sovereignty. Um, like these are these are just orientations. So I guess the shorter version of this question, that's some context really is, can the Christian in good faith 
where are those labels or are those labels sort of too far gone and not helpful? It's a great question. Um, I would say that whatever we hold ourselves as Baptist, Presbyterian, Catholic, Orthodox, Arminian, predestinarian, um, uh, four point, five point, whatever, the four spiritual laws the, um, uh, or tulip, uh, I think that they're good. And I'm not against denominationalism. I don't think that it's bad in and of itself. But I don't like when denomination becomes the primary identity. When it starts excluding and demeaning other expressions of Christianity, we can have honest questions and even concerns. Like I have questions over Mariology within the Catholic Church. Uh, I can have that as, um, as an honest concern. But I'm not going to call my Catholic brothers and sisters into question. And so I still want to love them as my brother and sister in Christ, but I also want to work it out. What does it mean to us for us to be unified? Uh, and so um, it can be unhelpful if we just stick our foot out and say, I'm a Calvinist. Do you want to fight? I don't think that's helpful. Uh, and so I usually don't refer to my, as a, myself as a Calvinism, but I did so because um, I wanted to say this is what I did believe, but this is not true Calvinism. Uh, and so I wanted to differentiate from what so many people peg as Calvinism. And I hear it constantly about how bad Calvinists are. And I think, well, there's a lot of beauty as well. And so let's be honest about the beauty. And so I just kind of put myself out there for them to have to deal with it. But, uh, but not to start a fight, not to try to see who's right, who can quote the most texts. I don't think that's helpful. Uh, and so, uh, yes, it's helpful as a secondary thing to work out our theological um, acuity, but not something to present as our righteousness or as our unity with one another. That's how I personally see it. Does anyone else have a thought? Fred? Yeah, I was, I was helped in this question when, by my university landlord, mm -hmm. uh, who was a Calvinist, and he, he said, to the fearful, God says, I've got you. And to the careless and belligerent, he said, watch out. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, that, was my, that was my whole lesson in um, Calvinism. Yes. I like that. That's good. A balance of warning and assurance. Well, I think yeah. that's biblical. I think that's what God says. That's right. And there's, other, there's another two streams within the Bible, and you can't collapse either one. It's warning and assurance. Yeah. I've got you. But make sure your election is sure. Yeah. Um, you can't lose either. If you're so assured, you're not going to do anything like, as I did. If you're so fearful and never assured, you're also not going to be very fruitful. Yeah. Uh, you need to have both. That, that line that God wants to keep convicting you and changing you and transforming you so that you will be safely in his arms in glory. Um, and he's working at, he's at work in you. So work out your salvation for it is God that works in you. So I think that's helpful. Did you want to hold on, Greg? Did you want to follow up, Zach, or are you? No, that was great. Uh, could I just ask for you to spell the, I think you said Ruthmacher, the, I don't know that author. Ruthmacher was a friend of Schaefer and uh, really form, um, formative for Dutch Labrie. 
His name is Hans, H-A-N-S, Rookmacher, R-O-O-K-M-A-A-K-E-R. Thanks very much. Mm -hmm. Okay, Greg. Yeah, I got I wanted that, a little bit of problem with that whole idea of election and predestination because I tend to think it's a lot less about salvation and a lot more about vocation. You know, is that we are uh, predestined and elected to be to fulfill our vocation, which is to be uh, vessels to spread God's love to the world, mm -hmm. and uh, and salvation, of course, plays into you know sort of you know like we have hearts to do that. Mm -hmm. But I don't see predestined when it says you're predestined that you're predestined to be. You'd be one of you know, to go to the good place, not the bad place, mm -hmm. sort of thing. However, however you look at it. so, I because and I think that's been a, a problem with the church for quite a while now is that the focus has been on personal salvation. Am mm -hmm. I in or am I out? Am I yes. going to be one of the guys that God's going to say, "Okay, here you go. You go to the good place, and no, uh, you didn't cut it. You go to the bad place." And uh, I think. I think our focus should be on the kingdom, God's kingdom, the kingdom here and now. And when we, when we generally become part of that kingdom, it's, it's an everlasting kingdom. Mm -hmm. But to become part of that kingdom, you've got to have a heart that, that is actually a godly heart that hears the Holy Spirit in our lives and projects God's love into the world. Mm -hmm. So I have, a, I have a lot of problem with the whole idea. Uh, of, am I saved or is he saved? Right. Is it, I mean, Paul said, judge not, you be not judged. And I think that yeah. probably that includes ourselves. And, and so as Christians, we shouldn't really be worrying about whether I'm saved or not. You know, my, my, what I should be worried about is am I fulfilling uh, the, the, my predestination vocation to serve God in this world, in the here and now? And the next life will take care of itself. And that's God's business. Great, great. Yeah, I would say that, yes, so many people focus just on the individual salvation rather than uh, their vocation, their godly vocation. The reason we are saved is in order to um, to be stewards of uh, the earth, mm -hmm. but also stewards of God's kingdom that is to come. So it's not as if we're trying to raise the root, like we're trying to build Babel. The Tower of Babel, but we just name it the kingdom of God, but we are preparing a place for the kingdom of God to come. And so there, there, there will be that wedding between heaven and earth, right? Yeah, well, that completion. But the, the new creation, you know, that is to come. It's not that we're called to build it. We're called to build for it. You That's know, exactly that, right. That, we are to that, build that for God, it. That God does it. But we, I mean, like, I like Tom Wright's thing. You got it. Yeah. It's true. And so exactly. Yes. Yeah. So, but what we can, what, what this tendency is for both the sides where they're wringing their hands, am I in or out? Do I, am I good enough? Uh, is, have I lost God's love now? Um, they both can be very navel gazing, mm -hmm. but God is saying, look, I've equipped you. I've saved you. Now go what I saved you for, you know, um, <laughs> And, and yeah, I think that is very important to not constantly worry. And I think that that's what predestination is for, is to give us the assurance and the encouragement to go in the midst of wolves, go into the midst of raging nations and know that even you're a, though a mustard seed, even though your life might be spent, God can raise that up 
you know, and, and God can raise up people from that and God can uh, establish his kingdom in that way. Well, to, to take, to go to a bit of an extreme, you know, the big, you, is that, you know, like, you know, these great big, you know, uh, field stages with some evangelist up there and people going up to an altar call. Well, the call to go up to the altar call is about, do you know, are you, are you saved? You know, has God saved you? And it all becomes your, about your personal salvation, which basically turns Christ's message right on its ear hmm. because it's, it's not, it's not because then it's uh, Christianity becomes a religion that's all about the self. I, I, you know, I've got, I've got to get the right stuff done or be, be whatever so that I can go to the good place, which I, because I believe in new creation rather than heaven and hell. <laughs> you said good place and a bad place. But anyway, hmm. you know, so I could get on the right side of God and wind up in the good place. It's all about me, hmm. you know, which is exactly the opposite of Christianity, which is all about the other, you know, right. is that we are, we are called to be servants. You know, wash each other's feet. Yeah. You know, and we we are called to be servants, and not and and if you if it's the whole focus on personal salvation, it's the exact opposite of the message that we see in Jesus. Yeah. Uh, very good. Very good point. Uh, Brett. Yeah. Just um, I agree with my uh, uh, esteemed uh, friend <laughs> here, but um, uh, for people who grow up with perfectionist parents. Um, you know, mm. you get that idea that I can never be good enough. So for those people, it's great to have a word of assurance. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Parents can devastate us. Yeah. But see, that's one of the things I believe as a Christian, sorry to be quick, <laughs> is that mm. I believe in a God of perfect justice. And, you know, and I, God being one of those privileged people I know, to be honest, you know, I grew up in a loving home and Everything just seemed to fall in place in my life. I got three healthy kids, a bunch of grandkids, a bunch of great grandkids, and <laughs> everything else. And I've just had this incredibly privileged life. And yeah. I've got friends, you know, kicked around from one foster home to another. And some and God in his, and I don't know how it's not up to me, but God works all this out with his perfect justice. Yeah. So all that, you know, somebody like Brett talks about, I, I believe and trust in a God that does work that sort of thing out. Yes. And, you know, not everyone has lived <coughs> hashtag blessed lives. Mm -hmm. Some people have had a very hard life, yeah. but they can also take hold that God has them secure and that they can be secure in him and that the sufferings will not have the final word. Mm -hmm. um, and so we can look to, uh, you know, Rodney Clapp was a guy who wrote a book and he talked about um, Cap, um, Calvinism. And really their movement toward capitalism, he's referring to a work, a famous work by Max Weber called The Spirit of Capitalism and the Protestant Work Ethic. And this idea is that Calvinists were in a place where they were questioning their salvation. Am I in or out? What do I look at to my left or to my right to know that I'm saved? Not just the check marks that I had, but while he said it was material wealth. Mm -hmm. And so they wanted to work really hard at building material wealth, because if they knew that they were blessed by God, then they must be secure in him. Uh, now, lots of people have a problem with Weber's thesis, but you can have that idea that if we look around and I heard it growing up, my life is so blessed as as if that was assurance. Even myself, there's been there's the temptation that um, or I used to have a greater temptation is very small now. But if everyone's happy with me, then God must be happy with me. Um, 
if everyone's upset at me or I upset somebody, then I get a little nervous. I want to like make things right. Um, but sometimes God calls us to disturb um, and be disturbed. Um, sometimes God calls us away from material blessings. He's not, uh, I'm not su suggesting that God is against material blessing, but it can be a trap. Um, and so, but we also not, we don't need to glorify suffering either. But, but the we just need to receive it all from God trap. and work out that he is accomplishing his good purposes in us and through us, whatever the circumstances. Absolutely. Yeah. It's all about the heart. It's, and, and God is a great heart changer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Statement. <clears throat> yeah. Um, first of all, I'm really confused because I mostly agree with you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is confused because she's mostly agreeing with me. It's a rare thing. <laughs> but I just like, I thought it was really cool, the blue dot thing. Mm. It just is, I think, the blue dot in your first journey. Mm. And the worm and the drop out of the bucket and all of that comes to me as in, like, that is us little peons on the spec that doesn't have a relationship with the creator. Mm. But then once we have that relationship with the creator, it's, like, so incredible. Like, mm. going to go really theological and talk about Horton hears a who. But, like, <laughs> when he heard them, they heard him then that little speck had relationship and it was worth protecting. But with the people that, the, the creatures that couldn't hear the people in the little speck and they couldn't hear them, there was no relationship and they were just a little speck to be trampled upon. Mm. But we're like that little blue speck there, but because of reconciliation, we have relationship and that brings that little peon mindset into it's true mind-blowing Horton hears me and he's going to protect me. You know, like, <laughs> like it's just mind-blowing positivity when you think of how tiny we are, but yes. that relationship brings it into an incredible thing. That's great. Thank you. Um, I think that the, maybe the only distance between us is that I've never read Horton Hears a Who. <laughs> you watch the movie, though, right? I've not seen the movie either. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so maybe if I watch that, we'll we'll really be reconciled in all our thinking. Jenna uh, Lee said that she's really confused that she mostly agrees with me. Um, and maybe you heard Jenna Lee, I'm not sure. But she just said that it's such a difference that the pale blue dot or the or the consoling consolingly unaffected space is really what it feels like when we don't know the creator. But when we finally hear the voice of the creator who is at the same time our father and when we see jesus we see the father it becomes very relational and we realize that though we are but a tiny speck how mindful he is of us and it changes everything it makes life very full and beautiful uh i totally agree um yeah and that's why every aspect of life god wants to to watch over not because he's trying to be constantly judging us but because he cares that much um and yet leads us to um to freedom within that it's not like an overbearing parent but that someone who just delights in oh let me see let me see that drawing you did 
Oh, that's really great. You're drawing a cat. Oh, it's a dog. It's a really great dog. You know, <laughs> those are my cats. They look like dogs. But it's just that the, yeah, everything has significance, our life. Um, and so it's true. It all depends on if we hear the father's voice. Um, there are a couple of comments in the chat. Um Looking around is always a problem. Yes, in salvation. Looking up and loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength removes the hand-wringing. Amen. Little blue speck equals the marble Julian of Norwich. Liz talked about God holding, loving, and keeping in his hand. Can you explain that? Julian Norwich was a medieval mystic, and she, she had this vision of God holding something the size of a hazelnut in sustaining it in his hand he made it he loves it he keeps it so even though everything is so tiny then he has a great okay so even though everything is so tiny like the acorn that god holds it in his hand um is that right hazelnut hazelnut <laughs> macadamia <laughs> nut <laughs> pistachio <laughs> nut an important theological aspect okay <laughs> um yeah i mean I, I love that Gerard Manley Hopkins delighted in a bluebell, the flower of bluebell. And he didn't glory, he didn't delight in bluebells proper, but he delighted in one particular bluebell because God made that particular bluebell that would then die. But for that moment, it was glorious. Mm -hmm. And he looked at each aspect of that one bluebell because only this bluebell would be this bluebell. And so even humanity, I'm not just, I think in today's world and society that we can feel like one of many forgotten on spreadsheets, um, easily made redundant, uh, unheard, no matter how much social media we're on, uh, constantly worried, um, billions of people throughout the world and um, what significance do I have in God like that bluebell has made each person for their own time, you know, for such a season as this, that each person is significant to God in their uniqueness, um, in their mind, in their body and everything. Um, so. That's yes. I can't remember. I never remember the numbers of songs, but the song talks about, um, as a father has compassion on his children, so has compassion on those who fear him. He remembers that we are but dust. So it's like his remembrance of us being small and fragile mm. is, causes him to have compassion, not scorn. So God sees us. Liz is saying that the father sees us and has compassion on us. We are like a tiny speck. And yet, what's that? I'm misquoting. Don't y'all wish that y'all were here? Um, but even though uh, it's we're but a speck, God has compassion over us because he knows we're fragile. And so it's his compassion is enlarged by our insignificance, not minimized. Yes, if, I'll, I'll try to be really brief. Okay, okay. <laughs> Is that one interesting way of looking at that whole thing? When you look at the blue dot, yes, and you see that, and you know, we see that we live in essentially an infinitely large universe. But if the physicists are right, the universe is one infinitely small, 
So we would be infinitely large compared to the whole universe at one point in time. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but you know, you know what I'm saying is I think we just see, you know, time and space, you know, in the way we view from our human point of view. But if, if you look at it, if, if at one time the, the Big Bang is correct, the whole universe, universe is infinitely small. Yeah. I was just watching a Marvel movie with my uh, my two children the other day, the Ant-Man, which was good. I hadn't seen it before. It was funny. But uh, this Ant-Man, you know, out of love for his daughter, ends up going into this quantum realm where there would be no time or space and therefore no return. Mm -hmm. But of course, he hears her voice. He, she, he comes back. You know, you can predict that. I like happy. Endings. But uh, yeah, it's a happy ending. But uh, but when you're watching it, you realize as he's going into this place where there's no time or space into this infinitely indefinite, infinite, indefinitely, whatever, small, it's super, super small, that you almost get frightened that this guy is going smaller, smaller, smaller and getting to a place where it's hard for us to even understand it's like smaller than the molecular. And, and I thought, and I talked to the, I talked to the kids, I'm like, even there, God is. Even there, God is. Yeah. Um, there is nothing outside of his power. You stand there, you look at an ant in the ground, yeah. you know, and there's God. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, so no matter how we, how infinitely big space is, no matter how infinitely small uh, space is, you know, um, the microscope or the telescope, God is, God yeah. is there and he's made it. Yeah. And he's Lord over it. So it's pretty amazing that we can have that confidence. Yeah. There's darkness is not even dark to him. So. We can agree on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyone else? It seems like yeah. from the Tim. beginning, God had predestined or planned that, that we don't understand quite how this world relates to the greater spiritual world out there. But it seems like Part of God's plan in making us was, was possibly to begin to overthrow Satan and his rebellion. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting if, if you think of it in that terms that even though we failed, God didn't fail. And he's still as coming as a man himself in Jesus, that he accomplished that. And that and that I'm thinking as us, like sometimes we think, or I think it's like, I haven't got a chance, you know, it's like against, <laughs> against spiritual opposition. Right. That I see. Caliber. And so I think that's <clears throat> also where, like he's predestined that victory to be worked out in us as well. It's like, you know, when we look at, at what we're up against, it'd be easy to lose hope. It is, yes. Yeah. Tim here just said, you know, we don't really know what relationship the earth has to the spiritual realm and the spiritual battle. And perhaps Tim is making a stab here. Mm -hmm. Perhaps uh, he, he designed the earth and humanity in order to contend and defeat Satan to have a, to have a role in that. Possibly. That's interesting. Yeah. I had not heard that before, but um, uh, and it's just too beyond us and it'd be too overwhelming for us to even consider that I have to defeat Satan in this unseen realm that is waging war. And I'm at, I'm a participant in this. I would be too easily overwhelmed. And so God 
has predestined his love and his victory at work in his people to overthrow Satan. And to not lose that individually or collectively. Yeah, you know, one thing that I find really puzzling, um, sometimes people are puzzled by dark things in the Bible. What do we do with the Canaanite wars? Uh, what do we do with imprecatory Psalms? Uh, what do we do about, you know, uh, God's ordaining power? But there's sometimes I'm puzzled by things and uh, that are too delightful to consider. And one of them is, it's too, it's too grand to believe that God made this beautiful, perfect world and then handed the keys over to Adam and Eve. Why would he do that? Yeah, mistake. Um, <laughs> but it wasn't a mistake. Uh, you know that God delights in humanity to be participants in what he's doing. And he's wanted us to participate from the beginning. He didn't want us to do it on our own, um, but he didn't want to just do it for us. He wanted us to, he wanted to mature. He wanted us to mature and to grow and to be made perfect. Even once we are find ourselves in Christ, it's the beginning of growth. It's not the finished journey. Um, even though we might be positionally sanctified, we still have that journey to go Um uh, to be matured in where and we, we are shaped by degrees. And so there, there's this whole movement throughout uh, Genesis to Revelation, just as we see in the individual life, is that there's, a, that there's a, an innocence, a naivete, and a, an, a very young, and then like growing and maturing and developing that culture is developing, that we go from a garden to a garden city, um, to a civilization. Um, but that's also true for the individual as we grow in Christ. But yeah, that, that God would make Adam and Eve know that they would sin, and yet desired and delighted that he would have them be his representatives in creation, and as participants in his salvation, that when he called Israel, he chose them so that they might be a light to the nations. He's not trying to just give them something for them to keep, but something that they might express just as God has expressed it to them. Um, and, and that work is not just for their personal salvation, but for the flourishing of creation. Um, and so, yeah, it's really beautiful that and, and too impossible for me to understand why God would do that rather than just kind of make it nice. And I knock I knock a, a bowl over and it breaks. God's not going to be like magically make it fix, you know, that's kind of like hell, you know, that there, that there's consequences and developments and maturity is a wonderful design and that we get to participate in that. So. Well, that's sort of one discussion I've had with atheists, you know, they say, well, why did, uh, you know, why didn't God just go to the, you know, like the next world that Christianity talks about where there's no suffering and so on and so forth. Why bottled all this stuff in the middle? You know, why didn't just go, you know, with creation, just go right directly to that. Yeah. You know, God's mysterious purpose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, someone asked in regards to the marginalized, that's the homeless, the mentally ill. It seems that the balance between God's sovereignty and our freedom of choice swings in God's direction. 
I'm sorry, I don't fully understand the question. Um, so come back to me if you want to say more. Um, uh, oh, here, here's, I got a little bit more. <clears throat> oh, because God's more in control of the circumstances of those who are marginalized. Um, God's more in control of their circumstances with those who are marginalized than they are in control of them for themselves. Yes, you know, um, but even though with someone with mental illness, uh, they seem like they have such little agency because we don't see them as contributing to society and that God has them in their hands. And yes, there are people who are paralyzed. And, but I still think the will is not diminished in our minds, the will, and there's still the ability to praise. Yeah, there might be limitations, but I don't think it ever minimizes their, uh, I don't think that God has never asks of people what he knows is impossible. He's not going to ask us to be omniscient. He's not going to ask us to be omnipotent. He's not going to ask us to fly and then judge us on that. Um, and so if someone has a mental illness, um, you know, uh, uh, that they don't have any control over, then I think that they are responsible for what they can do with God. And so their freedom may not be as expansive as another person's freedom, but they're still a hundred percent their freedom in relation to God's sovereignty. So that's how I see that. They can still have hearts that love. They can still have hearts mm -hmm. that love. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, lovely to all of you. Uh, I mean, I said lovely, anyway, it didn't make sense. <laughs> That was two different sentences. Gosh, it's getting late and I'm on the West Coast. Really lovely to see all of you here. Uh, if y'all want to talk with me more here, that's great. Um, but so good to see you on Zoom. Well, all y'all have good night. Thank you. you yeah, thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Really nice. See y'all. Yeah. Cool.